This Advent season, um, there are there are four Sundays, and um, we are going to kind of tonight look at the first arrival of Jesus. Next week, look at the life in between the arrivals, and the next week, look at his second coming. And then the last week will be our service where we do the all the readings and songs, and we take the uh, Hope of Life offering and all that kind of stuff. And so for this first one, in thinking about the, the first coming of Jesus, um, it's, it's such an easy thing to assume that we know everything about it. Isn't it? You know, like if you, if you have grown up in church especially, but even, even people who are not, uh, you know, like around the church a whole lot, they kind of know the story because there's nativity scenes and, and you know, there's... You know, there's baby Jesus, Mary and Joseph, and the shepherds, and the wise men, and the manger, and the barn, and the animals, and stuff. Like, we kind of have a loose understanding of the narrative of what happens, but um, was challenged in thinking toward Advent about just how much, uh, how, like, I, and maybe some of you as well, can, maybe you can relate, tend to kind of be like, well, I kind of know all that stuff already, you know. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to come tonight and like shock you with any sort of like amazing twist on the like birth story like it is exactly what it is like you can you can carve it out of wood and put it on a mantle so josh is not going to bring anything to the table it's going to stun you right like it's it's there but but maybe god wants us to be very childlike in our openness to continuing to deepen our understanding of what that first arrival was all about and so um I want to kind of just do a kind of a flyby of not only his first arrival, but also his just his life here on the earth and what that maybe means to us. Um, so, first of all, and I don't have any organized points, so if you're a note taker, I apologize. Uh, but I mean, I have points. It's just not you know three that all start with the same letter. So, um, y'all okay? Man. Um, so. First of all, his arrival was highly anticipated. Hundreds and hundreds of years were waiting on this dude to show up. And in the Old Testament, there are 44 different prophecies that are related to Jesus' like, coming as the Messiah. Uh, from in, the, in the very beginning, in Genesis 3, whenever Adam and Eve ate of the tree and everything was broken, and God begins to tell them... This is what life is going to be like now. Uh, in his charge to the devil, he says that, um, well, I'll just read it to you. It's not going to be on the screen. But he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And then it says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is considered by theologians to be the first hint of a like, Messiah to come. That Satan was going to come and, I'm sorry, Jesus was going to come. Satan was going to get a shot in at him. Like he's, you'll bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. That's a kill shot. 
And so from the very beginning, Satan is, like, his fate is determined. And so this is considered to be the first prophetic word about Jesus coming. Um, when God talks to Abraham, he talks about the, the nations being blessed through his lineage. We know now on this end of history that Jesus is a part of that lineage that he's talking about. Um, there are prophecies that talk about him being born in Bethlehem in Micah. Uh, there's prophecies that talk about him being born to a virgin in Isaiah. There are prophecies about his lineage, that he would be from the line of David in 2 Samuel and Genesis and Numbers and Isaiah. Um, and then I had you go to Micah chapter 5. Look at verse 4. If there's going to be a theme for us in Advent, this is probably going to be it. Um, it says, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. I'll read that again. This is, this is what people were anticipating in the coming Messiah. In the same passage where it talks about where he would be born, Micah says this, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This is who they had been waiting on. 44 different references to this coming Messiah that God was going to send this Redeemer, this Rescuer to come. And we know on this end of history, we know a lot of things that they didn't know at the time, but they assumed that he was going to be a political leader, a military leader, that he would would bring Israel back to like like global prominence, you know, as best as their understanding of the globe was. And, and, and that they would... like. It, it was very much in earthly terms what you would think a savior to come in would like bring to the table. And God had a different angle. But even though the people didn't fully understand the plan, they were waiting and they were praying and they were anticipating this arrival. And some had given up hope and some just rolled their eyes and then some were, I mean, fervent. They were begging God. They were, how long are you going to wait? Please, when is this Messiah coming? When is this Redeemer coming? And generation to generation, I'm sure as time passed, it'd be like, oh, it's, that's what my, my grandpa's obsessed with this Messiah thing. And I don't know why he can't let go of it. It's obviously not going to happen. And, and so they would put their faith in political leaders or military leaders. And um, then they would return to the Lord. And then uh, that would get old to them. And so they would tried themselves, and then uh, some army would come in and run them out. And there's just all this crazy history, but that whole Old Testament is looking, like pointing forward to the arrival of this Messiah, of his advent. And so when he shows up, things are not maybe what you would think. So turn to Luke chapter 1, or scroll to it, or whatever you kids do now. Luke chapter 1. So here's this like long-anticipated um, arrival of this Messiah, and it's finally going to happen. And in Luke 1, we see it from his mom's perspective, and Matthew 1, we see it from his dad's perspective. We're going to look at both of those real quick. Um, look at verse 26. 
In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he, the angel, came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, uh, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Okay, so Mary was like a teenager at the time. And uh, so she has an angel that comes and tells her, You're going to have a baby. It's going to be God's. And he's the this long-anticipated Messiah. You are going to, like, this will be your baby. You're going to be the mother of the Messiah. His name needs to be Jesus, and you don't need to freak out. And she was like, I just got one question. How, how is this going to, how is this, like, a thing? Like, how is that going to actually happen? Angel says, you don't need to worry about it. This is, this is how it's going to go down, and uh, everything's going to be cool. And she says, I am the Lord's servant. May everything happen to me just as you said. But look, this was not an acceptable situation in Mary's day. We know from reading, uh, from our reading of the New Testament that women caught in the act of adultery were dragged out into the street and killed by throwing rocks at them. And so for an, an unmarried uh, young lady to be pregnant... Was, uh, was not a favorable situation for her in this community. Not only in addition to the pregnancy, uh, lineage was of tremendous importance uh, in the Jewish community at this time. And so for this baby to be conceived, and for to not be Joseph's would bring in the baby's lineage into question, and that just caused a whole other group of problems and Probably, it doesn't say it in the Bible, but we can assume that there was a little bit of controversy surrounding this young lady who became pregnant. She was not married to her husband, claiming that they had never been intimate and all that kind of stuff. This was not a, like, uh, this was not a healthy situation at this particular time in history, for sure. And yet, this is the situation that God created on purpose, for Jesus to be born into. Right? Now go to Matthew chapter 1. Here we, we find uh, Joseph's story and his experience and how he found this out. 
18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Wouldn't you love to be a part of that conversation? I mean, imagine, imagine the dialogue that's going on between Mary and Joseph. You know, like, let's just place ourselves in, like, as like the fly on the wall in that dialogue, you know. It, it's, this was not like this, like, let's just sing this beautiful, like, hymn together about this thing. Like, there was a little bit of drama in the midst of this family unit that was forming um, and so Joseph, it says, uh, verse 19, And Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So rather than have her dragged out into the street and pelted with rocks, he was like, no, that's, that's not how this is going to go down. I, I'm not going to put her to shame. But he doesn't really seem very intent on remaining with her. So he wants to get out of the situation, but in a way that doesn't disgrace her. Uh, so obviously there's some disbelief happening for him, uh, as I mean, come on, let's honestly like I'm pregnant, but it's God's baby. So it's okay. Like it's, that's, that's, you know, okay. Um, so verse 20 says, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from uh, from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So Joseph needed a little convincing, and so the same angel shows up and basically tells him the same thing that he told Mary. And so both of them had a a messenger from God show up, tell them to not be afraid, tell them that God was in this. There's a recalling of the prophecies. And he tells each of them separately what his name needs to be. Maybe, maybe confirming something for the both of them. And so each of these people, this grown man, this young lady, find themselves in this situation of a completely, it had to just be the most stunning blessing of all time, but also this was a situation that would have caused a stir. It would have, have brought about some judgment, some gossip, some really bad advice, probably. You know, This was not exactly the kind of situation that you would think the Messiah who would stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, he would be their peace. This was not, a, in, an, in terms of social norms and taboos, this was not the kind of scenario where that would happen. So, Jesus was born into the brokenness and drama of our fallen world. You know, he, didn't, he didn't just appear somewhere. He wasn't born into a palace. He wasn't born into uh, this incredibly like, peaceful and 
uh, worry-free, you know, mom and dad and everything's okay, and that some of our songs maybe don't paint the most accurate picture. And some of our understanding of things is maybe a little too romanticized. He was born in the midst of some drama. And it was all designed by God on purpose to be that way. There's no telling the remarks that were made to them. There's no telling the, the, the ten months of just social weirdness that they went through. What those conversations were like as they began to tell people and bring them in on what was going on. And to maybe the trusted friends that were like, no, but it's, he's the Messiah. And they're like, oh yeah, dude, he's the Messiah, okay. His name is Jesus. Oh yeah, there's a bunch of Jesuses out here. It's like one of the most common names in our whole community. Like, come on, man. But, but they hung in there. And so... When you think about Jesus and his first arrival being born into the busted, broken drama of our world, we should pay attention to that. Like That should speak something to us. Um, this was the new environment for the Word made who became flesh and dwelt among us. This God who had existed from the beginning of time and created all these things was now in the middle of the brokenness that sin had created. And so, to kind of do a... Let me do a flyby here. Um, if, if I can maybe break Jesus' life up into a couple of segments, um, from this time that we just read about until he was 12, here's, here are a couple of things that we know about him. He was born to an unwed pregnant mother... He was born to a dad who isn't his dad. You know, that's a, that's a big deal back then. Um, they had ten months of no telling what kind of social weirdness was there. Um, and that as people found things out and had to answer questions and that kind of stuff. They traveled to Bethlehem, Joseph's home, hometown, for a census. Uh, and certainly, Joseph rolls in and... Uh, maybe meets up with some old family he hadn't seen in a long time, and they're like, oh, is this your wife? He's like, well, not, not yet. <laughs> you know, that had to be weird. And in the most hospitable of places, no one took them in, even though she was pregnant, and this was Jesus' hometown. I think that's, I, I find that to be interesting. Like this was, everyone's traveling back home for a census, and so everyone's coming in, Let's say that Joseph is like your like first cousin. You're like, oh man, I hadn't seen you in so long. And you find out some things, and you're like, hey, can we maybe crash at your house with my pregnant girlfriend? I don't know what she was considered. And uh, you're like, oh no, we're kind of full. You know, was that created by the the stigma of their situation? I don't know, but um, it seems strange to me, at least, that there was no room for them anywhere, even in the hotels and stuff. Um, we don't know of anyone that came to visit them, or we don't have a record of anyone even being with them when Jesus was born. Uh, so I don't, and again, I'm kind of reading into the situation, so give me a little license here. Uh, we know that the shepherds came to visit them, uh, but that was not a very—that's not like a, a cool thing at that time. Um, we know that two years later, the magi came from the east and. Um, at that point, they were living in a house somewhere, so they kind of you know, established themselves after a year or two. But uh, 
the Magi came, and then after they left, uh, the word came to them uh, that Herod was trying to kill all of the like, like infants in Bethlehem because he knew that the Messiah had been born there, and they had seen the star and all that stuff. And so they had to take off and go live in Egypt for a while. And so Jesus, as a two-year-old, was like had to like basically run, make a run for it, and uh, kind of hide out for a while until Herod died, and they were able to come back in. And then even still, it was kind of like a weird thing. And and so Jesus, as a young person, is out out of his culture, out of sorts. Uh, who knows if his parents told him that 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 was the reason why? You know, but. Um, that's got to be kind of a weird thing to grow up in. and So we know all that up until he's 12. Uh, and then from 12 to 30, we don't know a whole lot, but there's this verse, uh, Luke 2, 52, says that Jesus increased in wisdom, stature, in favor with God, in favor with man. And so we see him growing mentally and physically and spiritually and socially. And, but imagine, like, from 12 to 30, imagine that you are the sinless kid in the community. Like, you think you were, like, real popular? Probably not. Like, there was probably some uh, picking, some bullying, and some whatever that had to happen. Here's Jesus, the kid that literally never messes up. So that had to be a weird thing to be a part of his formation and for him to experience. But sometimes I, I think it's easy to lose sight of the fact that Jesus was, like, a normal Jewish kid. And then he was a normal Jewish teenager. And he was a normal Jew- Jewish young man. And he was a normal Jewish adult man. So from 12 to 30, think about how much you went through in that span of time. Jesus experienced all that normal stuff. His advent tells us that, that he came to the earth, was born into this not real great social situation for his parents, and grew up with all those same stigmas and same whatevers in there. Uh, the whole time as he's growing mentally and physically and spiritually and socially and all these things are happening, he's doing so without sinning when you're surrounded by sinners. That had to be, you know, something. So, uh, so, then, so that was, you know, conception to 12 and then 12 to 30. Then at 30 is when the scriptures start to give us more detail about his life. Here's, here's a summary of some things we know about him from the Bible. Uh, we know that he had relational difficulties. Um, not that he had trouble relating to people, but in his relationships, the brokenness of the world, he had to experience how that impacts our relationships with each other. Uh, one, I mean, imagine just being the, the sibling of the sinless kid in the community, right? Like, some of you have trouble with your, like, you know, relating to your siblings, or we feel like the oldest one is always the favorite, or the baby, or whatever it is. We always joke in our family that it's the middle one. And there's the whole story there. But there's always some sort of like joking sibling rivalry, but sometimes it's for real. But imagine that Jesus was your brother, you know? Like talk about pressure. Talk about living in someone's shadow. He never messed up. And so that had to be in there somewhere. But uh, specific things in the Bible we know, his brother James was not a believer until after the resurrection. Like James that wrote James. And so Jesus for his entire like, life and ministry, had to deal with a sibling who did not believe anything that he had to say. Um, he dealt with betrayal by one of his best friends named Judas. He dealt with uh, his, one of his best friends, Peter, denying that he even knew him, like not even want to associate with him at all. Uh, he had a group of disciples 
and a group of best friends and a best friend who just didn't get him. You know, like they, they would kind of sometimes, but they didn't get him at all. Um, and he did not meet anyone's expectations, you know. Like even in his healings and in those kind of things, there were very few people who really, really got him and understood what was going on there. And so there are plenty of times when he would heal people and it's not like they came into this new knowledge of the kingdom necessarily. Plenty of times they just, remember the story of the lepers? Healed ten of them and nine of them took off. I'm like, whatever, thanks dude. Only one of them came back and like thanked him and worshipped him. Imagine the whole ministry of that where there's just tons of giving and not a lot of uh, anything being reciprocated or whatever. And, and the fact that you weren't the military messiah that they wanted. You weren't the political figure that they wanted. Their expectations were a certain thing and you were not going to meet those expectations. And imagine disappointing people a lot. I know it's weird to think that G- of Jesus being a disappointment, but if you're expecting him to be a military general, he's not going to meet your expectations. And he kept coming up against that all the time um, and what people were wanting from him. So his relationships were difficult in his ministry. Um, We know that he experienced some normal life things. Uh, He went through death and grief uh, with John the Baptist, with Lazarus. His father, Joseph, was not present at the crucifixion like his mother was. So the assumption is at some point he lost his dad. Um, So he's experienced grief. Um, He had to come to terms with his own mortality in, in a sense that in the Garden of Gethsemane he's having to to know that his death is like imminent. This is a normal life thing that all of us will go through at some point. Um, he, uh, he was single and he was childless in a culture that interpreted that, like both of those things, as some sort of curse. That had to kind of stink, right? When everyone out there is like, oh, you can't have kids, God must be super mad at you. And that's what everyone thinks, is the norm, which is not true, just in case you're wondering. So here's this single, childless rabbi. who That had to be difficult for him in, at, at times in terms of, it, it just could not have been easy. Well, I'll just leave it there. Uh, he was essentially homeless. And so as he traveled around, he was dependent on hospitality. He was dependent on... Um, certain things to be able to eat and clothe himself and all that kind of stuff. And so he just had some normal, like, normal things about his life. Um, and just the public demand, you know. I mean, there were, there were people who were willing to cut a hole in a roof to lower someone down to him, you know. He, the crowds were pressing him up against the water so much he had to get in a boat and kind of make a stage out in the water, you know. Like, the, the demands that were there on him, the expectations, are just all this normal life stuff that we know he went through. We know from Isaiah 53 that he was not attractive by worldly standards. We know that he was despised and rejected by men. We know that he was acquainted with sorrow and grief. We know that he was made a scapegoat even though he was innocent. Um, we know that he was oppressed and that he was afflicted and that his soul was anguished. Jesus was a real human person. Like, he went through all that stuff. He was immersed in life with sinners all the time. He was immersed in, a bro- in the broken world systems that we live in. He was immersed in a broken economy, in uh, situations of, of extreme poverty and extreme wealth. 
Um, he was familiar with greed and how all that had happened. He knew the political stuff. He knew the military stuff. He was in that world. He's constantly pursued by the sick and the broken, coming face-to-face constantly with those who need what you have to offer. Um, and, uh, but at times, him not giving them those things. Uh, and even spiritually, he was... He, he had to be dependent on the Father and on the Spirit. He knows the battle of obedience. He knows the battle of submission. He understands the weight of sin and all of its consequences because he bore that in his own life. He knows what it's like to be attacked from the enemy constantly. And he knows what it's like for people everywhere to misunderstand the Scriptures and salvation and God himself. That's what we know about Jesus from... His ministry, that's just a weird summary. Not weird, bad. And then, looking back on his life, here's what we know. This is Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. I'm just going to read it to you. You've probably heard it before. But looking back on his life, it says, since then, this is 14 through 16. It says, since then we have a, high, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest, meaning Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So what is that? Like you think about that verse, that Jesus our high priest has been tempted in every way as we are, but without sin. I mean, that means that he was tempted with pride and taking shortcuts and physical weaknesses. All that we see in his attack uh, from Satan in the desert. That he wrestled with pride and he wrestled with bypassing and taking the shortcut to something that he wanted instead of being obedient. He had to understand the battle and the difference between attraction and lust. Like that is an all-encompassing verse. And we have every right in our interpretation of that to say, if he's been tempted in every way like I have and like you have, then let's... We can put anything in that category. And so I would imagine that, that Jesus, the young man, uh, had to battle that. Had to deal with attraction and the temptation for that to cross into lust. He had to battle the, the desire for revenge and for selfish ambition and greed and power and idolatry. That verse says that he, he's been through it all. That at the base, at the base of all the, th- the things that we battle, Jesus has been through the same basic things. And yet, it was without sin. So let me just say it this way. If you, th- if you think about his, the controversy he was born into and grew up with, and the, the life that he lived being tempted in every way as we are, but did not sin, and all of the normal life things, and all the spiritual things, and all the relational things, and all that he experienced in his 33 years on this earth, his advent should like tell us a bunch of things, and one of those things is this. Jesus is not afraid of our drama. He's not afraid of whatever it is that is going on in your life. That verse 15 It says, uh, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Another way to say that is that we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. He is absolutely able to do that. 
And so for us as Christians to think about the coming of Jesus is not just about the nativity scene. It's about God being with us and experiencing all the garbage of this world. We have so much evidence, so much in front of us. And the, the, we could not have every word you know, and every action he ever did. There wouldn't be enough books in the whole world. But we do have this evidence in front of us that's, that proves to us that Jesus, our high priest, is able to identify with the garbage that we have to go through. And hadn't this been a year, you know? I mean, there's so many jokes that are made about how terrible 2016 has been. And you know what? We made the same jokes at the end of 15 and 14 and going all the way back. It's just, it's just stuff. But this year seems to be exceptionally uh, scarring, possibly, you know? We've been through some stuff. Our church has been through some stuff. Our, our city has been through some stuff. Our whole region has been through some stuff. And Jesus is able to sympathize with every single bit of it. And you know what the verse says right after that verse? Verse 16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So because we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, and yet... And he was tempted in every way as we are, but was without sin. He says, come on in and let's talk about what you're going through. Confidently approach the throne of grace so that you can find mercy. Let him reach into the pain and let him sit with you in the midst of it and shepherd you through it. His advent like, is a clear, clear invitation that makes those verses so real to us. He wants to be sitting in the middle of the trauma with us. He became flesh and dwelt among us to redeem, like to die on the cross, yes, but also to shepherd us. Remember the verse that we read at the beginning? Micah 5, 4 and 5. says, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When we invite him into the garbage that we're going through, that verse is proven true over and over and over again. That's part of what he came here to do. He came to die on the cross? Yes. He also came to live and gather all of these experiences so that he, as our intercessor and our priest, can say, come on, let's sit down and let's talk about that because I, I, know, I know what it's like. God the Father doesn't know what it's like. God the Holy Spirit doesn't know what it's like. But the Son knows what it's like. And he stands and shepherds in strength. And he is our peace. And I was thinking about all the things that we've gone through and the things that exist in a room like this. I made a list, and I just want to run through it real quick. I know it's maybe a little bit longer than I thought it would be, but this is a list of things that I know about that, are, that we are bringing to the table in the lives within our church. 
from prayer requests and from talking with folks and all that kind of stuff. These are the things I know about. I don't freak out and be like, oh, no, he totally called me out. I'm not calling anyone out. I, I, I just want you, to, I want you to hear what the family is going through. Um, and there are a number of these. You could put, like, tick marks next to it as far as multiple people. Um, there's some major, I mean, major life decisions being made. There's parenting struggles. There's battling uh, singleness. There's uh, battling sexual identity. People who want to find their place in the church. People who have been hurt by the church, our church and others, who are trying to overcome that, though. People dealing with sick and aging parents. People who who want to find their security in the right place, but it's difficult. People who need wisdom in how to rebuild their homes after the flood. People who's, who don't want the flood to negatively impact their marriage, but it's proving to be difficult. People whose grief is really, really fresh. And people whose grief is more in the like long-suffering category. Um, major differences in what you believe and those who you are close to and love very much, what they believe. Secret sin. Uh, parents who give you a hard time about your relationship status. Being far away from your family and how, that, how hard that is. Feeling left behind by your close friends. Uh, transitioning into new stages of life. Taking obedient steps and seeing how difficult that can be. Uh, people that you love dearly who want nothing to do with Jesus. Financial fears. Trying to discern about planning a church together with this group of people. Uh, being nervous about new jobs. Uh, wanting to be a great parent, but not wanting your kid to become an idol, and the, the fine line that you know that can be. Uh, marriage in general, new marriages, old marriages, the ups and downs that exist there. Healing from trauma in your past, oh, all kinds of trauma. Uh, church just not being very important to you, uh, but you want it to be, but it just isn't. Battling with order, with margin, with stewardship, with contentment, with approval addiction, uh, family members who are just a wreck, and you just don't know what to do with them. Uh, the political scene causing tensions, uh, marital infidelity, uh, wanting to date in a godly way, people who have no, no drive to love the Lord at all. Uh, dealing with your spouse's sin, dealing with uh, anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts, sexual sin, uh, how to be on the receiving end of injustice in a way that is honoring to God. Um, materialism, greed, racism. That, can I say that Jesus is not afraid of a single thing on that list? And he's not afraid of this room. He's not intimidated by the stuff that we're going through. And that's just a drop in the bucket. And that's just the stuff that I happen to know about. Imagine that all of us probably have several things we could contribute to a list, and they're just big old long lists, and Jesus is like, every single one of those things I know what to do with. At the root of every one of those things, I've, I've been through the battle, and I understand. I'm able to sympathize with you and your weakness. Yet I was able to make it through without sin. So approach the throne of grace. What does that really mean? Uh, just approach Jesus confidently that you can have, find mercy and help in your time of need. That's, what, that's, what, that's the invitation. And his advent to us is proof that he wants to sit in the drama with us. He's not distant. He is paying attention. 
And he wants to just be in it with us. So he's not afraid of whatever it is that you bring to the table. So what is it for you? You know, like what is it? Perhaps you are like you're involving him in things and you're sitting there and you're amening what I'm saying because you're like, yeah, I've been experiencing that. Like he really, Jesus wants to shepherd me in the strength of the Lord. He wants to stand in the midst of it with me. He has become my peace. And if you're doing that, then like, please take this as an encouragement. May Advent remind you of the experiences of your Savior and his ability to guide you through it. But if you are resistant, if you don't believe it, if you are mad at him, if you are self-reliant, if you have convinced yourself that he really doesn't care that much or he really doesn't know because he's never been through the specific detail that you are, then you, you need to hear what the Spirit is saying through the Scriptures and through uh, the season to us that God is like in it. And I, I read on Twitter one time, you know, where all great wisdom is found. Uh, this guy said, uh, he said, you need, we need to stop asking Jesus into our heart. And uh, he said, because you know what? He said, let's face it, like, our lives are a wreck. We need to re- realize that Jesus invites us into his life, into his heart. He invites us into the throne room of grace where it's not a wreck. So I'm not saying that this fixes everything. But could it be that Jesus wants us to take him up on it a little bit? Maybe that's the challenge before us is to to bring bring the garbage of our world to him and say, please help me with this. So whether it's personal for you or maybe it's something in your family or in your friend group or whatever it looks like, Let's listen to what the Spirit wants to say to us.